0: Oh, what a great day today. Did you guys see the sun? Was it nice? Did you miss it? <laughs> I would say something like, I want to get my Harley out, but I, last time I did that, it snowed for the next three days. So I learned my lesson, I won't say nothing. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11 tonight. We're going to take a look at the seventh trumpet, <clears throat> which begins in verse 15. So, as we look, the most of the judgments are broken down into a four and then a three. Four, three, four, three. <clears throat> the trumpet judgments, the first four, all deal with creation in some way. And the last three all deal with mankind. And we've seen uh, uh, God really unleashing... Um, the demon hordes in the last two trumpet judgments. And we had a gap before the seventh trumpet, which is going to sound over the last three and a half years, the entire time. And as we look at this uh, last trumpet, we were introduced to two witnesses, right? Because whenever God does something, remember we talked about this idea, when we come to the trumpets, what were the trumpets for? Warning, right? Warning, warning, warning. And In fact, the Lord would tell his prophets, especially Ezekiel, that if I give you warning and you don't tell the people of the city that the enemy is coming and they don't prepare and they die, then I'm going to require their blood on your hands. But if you give them warning, if you sound the trumpet and they don't do anything to prepare, then their blood is on their hands. So the idea, the picture of this This warning, God shouting out uh, the judgment, has come, and it's only going to get worse. The degrees, the fire, is, if you will, is being turned up. So let's take a look at verse 15, and Revelation 11, we'll read it together. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints... (coughs) excuse me, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come to you This evening, Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide and lead, Father, that you would anoint this time as we just seek your blessing, that you would open our eyes to all that you have for us, God, Lord, that you would be glorified and magnified as it is clearly our desire to honor you in the things that we say and do. So, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the word, open our hearts, open our understanding, Lord, as we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we look back, you remember <clears throat> Revelation 11, verse 14. It says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now you remember, between, after the four trumpets, we had a warning. Remember, an eagle flying through the heavens, declaring, woe, woe, woe. There are three woes coming upon mankind the first two are, are demonic, uh, where God has basically let the demons who are in chains go, and they have their way, uh, although limited, they have their way on earth during that time. Uh, the final woe is the seventh trumpet. Remember, the seventh trumpet sounds for how long? Three and a half years, a long time. So it's, it is the whole... Final three and a half years is the final woe, and when we look at chapter twelve we're really going to see why, right because in chapter twelve we're we're going to be introduced to a a battle that takes place in heaven, and I believe it takes place in heaven at that time. Now some people would say it has already happened, but uh I believe Satan still has access to God, still goes before the throne, Paul says that he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them both night and day. So I think he's still about doing those things. But we'll take a look at that next week when we look. So the third woe has begun. Now look at it. The third woe is a little different, right? We have calamity, calamity, calamity. This does not seem so calamitous, right? It's it's the announcement that the kingdom of the earth has become the kingdom of our God. Now... There's a sense in which the whole earth has always belonged to God, right? <coughs> but now at the seventh trumpet, he's going to take ownership. And, and that process is a three and a half year process through which God brings about his purpose. Verse 15, the seventh trumpet blew, or the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign Forever and ever. And I think this is a culmination to the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember? The, our Father who art in heaven. What was that line in, in Matthew 6 verse 10? It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. The establishing of the kingdom of God. And here we see that establishing. Now what's the purpose of that? Well, <clears throat> up Until this time, man has had opportunity. Make a choice. Choose this day who you will serve. Once he establishes his kingdom, now every knee will bow. He is setting it up and establishing it. And the scripture tells us he'll rule with a rod of iron. Now how long is he going to rule? What does it say? For how long? It tells us that he shall reign. What does it say? Forever and ever. Is that a long time? That's a long time. Is, is this something new, scripturally, that the Lord would reign forever and ever? It's, it's all over in scripture. Let's look at it. Psalm 93, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord reigns. Now that's a continuous action. God's still in control, right? God's still in control. But has all mankind submitted to His authority? No. So He will establish a kingdom so that that will be done. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the, word, or the world is established, and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So how long is God going to rule? Forever and never. Has He ever not been king? No, He's always been king. He's always been sovereign. That's why when we read a book like Job, you guys remember when we went through Job, that, that all the calamities that occurred to Job were, were brought to Job into his life through the devil. But how is it that he got opportunity to do that? He had to go somewhere for permission, didn't he? The devil can't just do whatever he wants, can he? According to Job, it says that, that, that Satan came before God and said, If you cut me loose, Job will quit on you right now. So God said... Go ahead. Did he set limits? Yeah. Could the Satan do whatever he wanted? Nope. <coughs> he set limits, and God lifted up Job as his champion. God is the sovereign. He's in control. He's the king. He's the judge. Everything that enters into my life today passes through the hands of a God who loves me. Now, can I pretend to know how all the links of the chain fit together? I mean, in our, in our incredible reasoning skills, you and I, and our ability to understand, you think we can, we can figure out how everybody's, the actions that happen, to everybody fit together? I don't think I can. I don't think I, I would get it even if God came down here and told me all the whys and all the reasons. But I know that all the things that happen to man here on earth, they all fit together like, a, like weaving in a tapestry, right? They all fit together. We can't see it. We tend to see our own and our own circumstances, but God sees them all. He sees how <clears throat> they are weaved together to bring about His purposes. And so God is sovereign. He is king. He has the authority. Psalm 145, 10 says, "...all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power." To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. So what do I have to remind myself when I think about the sovereignty and the everlasting nature of God's kingdom? I have to remind myself of something. God is good. Well, sometimes I don't feel like that, but that's only because I don't understand how all those pieces fit together. I don't know how they how they weave, what the purpose, what God's doing, how God's working. <clears throat> but I can trust in what I do know. What do I know? God is good. God is loving, and God has a purpose. It's not empty. It's not valueless. It's not suffering just for suffering's sake. Or hardship just for hardship's sake, but it is working out an exceedingly great weight of glory. Daniel four three says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel six twenty-six <coughs> excuse me, I will make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear. Before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be unto the end. Daniel 727, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So there is a day when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will be the day that Jesus Christ rules as king. We read about that when we get to Revelation chapter 20. Got a couple of chapters left to go. But we'll see that reign. The Old Testament scriptures talk about that kingdom. You you guys have heard these things. The, The wolf will lay down with the lamb. You guys heard that? A lot of times people say the lion will lay down with the lamb. But that's not in the Bible anywhere. The lion and the lamb are in the Bible, but it doesn't say the lion will lay down with the lamb. It says the wolf will. Natural enemies are going to live together. It says the child will play by the cobra's den. And we don't have to worry because the cobra's not going to bite him. That all of these beasts in the past that man has been afraid of, it says a little child will lead them. That the curse is going to be lifted. That the dead sea will live again. That uh, all that, that has affected this earth prior to the reign of Christ is going to be re- removed. And you'll have a thousand years of perfect peace. And at the end of that, God's going to prove that the heart of man, apart from being changed by God, is still wicked. Because at the end of the millennial reign, what does man still do? Rebels against God. Why? Because it hasn't been good enough? Nope, it's been good. They haven't had enough food? Nope, got everything they need. Hasn't been enough justice? Nope, perfect justice. Can you fool God? Yeah, you can't come to God and say, oh no, but my neighbor stole this. <coughs> when you really lost it, God knows, right? Perfect Rule for a thousand years, but the heart of man is still in rebellion against God. This kingdom, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the trumpet is sounding that coming kingdom. When that trumpet quits blowing, Jesus will be on the throne. Make sense? So this is what we're this is what we're looking to. Second Peter one eleven says, "For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom." Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So how long is this kingdom? Forever and ever, right? Forever and ever. Now, what about the territory? How, how much territory is it? What would that verse say? The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. They have become the kingdoms of our sovereign. Speaking of God the Father. And His Christ. What's the word Christ? It's a Greek word for what Hebrew word? Messiah. You guys heard that before, right? The Messiah. He's the Messiah. (coughs) So he lays out. It's it's everywhere. Is there anything on earth that don't belong to God? Is there some place that ain't his? It's all his. What about the air we breathe? That's his. What about the the food we eat? That's his. What about the, the stuff we use? Yeah, the Bible says all the earth and the fullness thereof is his. So it's all God's, right? It all belongs to Him. And He is going to take it all. All His. Not just Jerusalem. Not just Israel. But everything. Psalm 47, 7 and 8 says, For God is the King of all the earth. So sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. In Daniel, somewhere around chapter 4, what does it tell us? It tells us that who is responsible for raising up kings. Bringing down kingdoms. Yeah, God, right? So what is it speaking of? His sovereignty. It's all His. The earth and the fullness thereof all belongs to Him. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over how much? Yeah, it's one of those great places where all means all, and that's all that all means, right? So, it's all His. Everything. So we talk... How long is the kingdom? Forever and ever. How much of the kingdom is it? Only the whole world. Only the whole world. Everything that we can see and begin to understand. So, verse 15 tells us the extent of His kingdom. It kind of lays out the idea of the extent of His kingdom. But then we have the exaltation of His majesty. Look at at the next verse, verse 16. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, and worshipped God. There's a a unique attribute that we're going to see of the 24 elders. Now, remember we discussed who they were when we were back in chapters 4 and 5. I I believe the 24 elders are a representative number that includes the church, that they represent the church. Some people see 12 tribes and 12 disciples, uh, which ultimately would be doing the same thing. The twelve and the twelve sitting together on thrones are, are a, uh, a number of the redeemed of God. Those whom God has redeemed. But nevertheless, as we look at them, what are they doing? Worshiping God. How many times? Just about every time we see them, right? It's like every time we see them, it says they fell on their face and worship God. They fell on their face and worship God. They fell on their face and worship God. Is there anybody, by the way, any human being who has ever had The opportunity to stand in the presence of God who hasn't done that. Well, that's pretty much all of them, right? Just about every prophet that we read about in the scriptures. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. (coughs) One of the the factors that make them a prophet is not just the fact that they make predictions. Or that they say that they're speaking for God. Or that they speak forth God's word. But that they had a face-to-face encounter with God. That they received their call from God. Think about the New Testament guy. What's that guy's name? Oh, Paul. You remember him? Right? God picked him out of a... He was headed to wipe everybody out. Yeah? So he had a face-to-face encounter with God. And then God commissioned him. Isaiah. Face-to-face encounter with God when? Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel. Face-to-face encounter with God when? Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3. Over and over and over again, when you look at the, the the prophets, you're going to see that this sets them apart. What they had a face-to-face encounter with God. And what do they all do when they have that face-to-face encounter with God? Well, Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What's he saying? He suddenly recognizes his sinfulness and his, he, that he is woefully insufficient to stand before God. What makes us able to stand before God? Yeah, Jesus Christ. Grace of God makes us able to stand before God. And so you'll see a similar experience that all the prophets have when they come before the Lord. So when we see the 24 elders, it's not shocking to me that this is their the action that we see them in. In Revelation 4.10, what's it say? <coughs> 24 elders fall down before Him who is sitting on the throne and worship Him who lives Forever and ever, Revelation five eight. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb, uh, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation five fourteen. The four living creatures say Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 19, 4. As we come to that day, the final battle. It says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. So be it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. What do we see the 24 elders doing? What is the, the, the exaltation of his majesty? What, how do they react? They fall on their face and worship. Same reaction they have over and over again. What do you think we're going to want to do the moment after the terror passes and we realize that Jesus Christ covers us, And we are standing before our God and Creator. How do you think we'll respond? I bet we fall on our face and worship. Seems like everybody gone before us has done the same thing, right? (laughs) So I think that that will be our attitude as well. So then next we look. we We see their worship, the reaction they fall on their face, and their response. What do they say? What do they say? Thank you. Isn't that strange? I mean, just as in terms of when we're thinking about the identity of who we're looking at and what's going on, I mean, that'd be a strange thing for for an angel to say, no? just seems weird to me. Thank you is not a strange thing for a person to say, though, especially a person who has experienced the grace of God, right? We have angels created, elect, and evil. (coughs) They're not redeemed nor are they redeemable. I, I, I'm sure that they worship, and I'm sure that they uh, ascribe glory and honor to God. But thanks seems to be a human emotion to me. So, what do they say? Verse 17 We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. What are they saying? Man, God, thank you. The day has finally come. For what? For the kingdom to begin. Or for that which has begun at the time of Christ to be culminated, the fulfillment. Right? The return of the king, the establishment of the kingdom. All the things that man who have fallen in love with Jesus from the beginning of the gospel till now has longed for. And now the 24 elders, what's their response? Thank you, Lord. Almighty is the word panto-creator. It means all-powerful. The the one who is ultimate, the, the creator of all things, able to do all things. They give thanks. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says this. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. So the very same thing is calling mankind too. <coughs> That's the response we see of the 24 elders. So let's look at, again, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we, we have a list of reasons that they're responding like this, that they're giving praise, that they're giving God thanks. Several things that, that I want you to see. One, they're giving thanks for God's power being proclaimed. God's power being proclaimed. You know, one of the things I long to see on earth is the earth to realize and to know the power of God. The power of God. So, He has taken His great power and begun to reign. Now, there is a sense in which God has always reigned. We were just talking about that, right? It's all been His for all time. But now we see that the establishment of His reign on earth, His rule, His presence is about to take place. It's interesting because as I studied this, uh, I came across something interesting I want to share with you. Um, this idea that, that he, he hadn't taken uh, and utilized his power and his rulership of, of all the world. But there's another sense in which he has had providence, right? He's over. He's sovereign. So he has, in his providence, allowed, if you will, uh, the powers of evil to temporarily have their day. This is what I, what I found. During that time period, they're accumulating the wrath of God. They're freely doing what they want. And what they want is building up the wrath of God. An understanding of what is implied here is found in Halloween, which is always the day before All Saints Day. It was originally perceived to be the last fling of the devils before they were subdued by the saints on the following day. Whatever has been allowed by the devil and his minions has now been clearly circumscribed, and the Lord God has taken all power and begun to reign. So it's all being wrapped up. That's what's happening. The power of God is going to be expressed. No one on earth during that time is going to wonder. Now the Bible tells, according to Romans 1, 2, and 3, that the, the invisible attributes of power of God is clearly seen in creation so that all men are without excuse. It doesn't say dimly seen. It says clearly seen. And understood. Why? Because God showed them. Romans chapter 1. Just take a look at it. And what's he, what's he saying? He's saying, look, man knows God. Man, man doesn't go to hell because he doesn't know God. Man goes to hell because he won't worship the God he knows exists. That's why. The Bible says all men know. You can can say, I don't believe in nothing I can't see. But that's your choice. That doesn't mean you don't know that there's things you can't see that are involved in what's going on in this world. The Bible says one of the reasons they're going to give thanks, the power of God is being proclaimed. Clearly seen (coughs) around them. Next we're going to see God's plan being accomplished. Look, it says, God's plan is going to be uh, finished. He says, for the time for the dead to be judged. Judgment day has come. What's God's plan? The judgment of mankind. Psalms chapter 2, verse 1 through 6 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, what's he talking about in Psalm 2? He's talking about the day when Jesus rules and reigns as king, and the men who follow Him in that kingdom say, we won't have you rule over us. We always think that if, if we took away all the objections and God just clearly showed himself and everything was perfect, then man would be right. But see, what's broken is not how God deals with us. What's broken is us. Right? You ever heard that thing that, you know, sometimes people get in trouble and they want to move somewhere else? You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, I just want a fresh start. I want to move someplace else. What's wrong with that plan? You went with you, right? So when you get there, you're still there. So if the problems all circle you, how long before all those same problems come back? Not very long, right? You're still there. You're still there. Those things are <clears throat> are coming back. The, the problem is in the heart of men. So what does it say? It says God laughs at them. Holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The writer of Psalms saying, my, my eyes on Jesus. The day will come when men will reject him still to rule over them. Revelation 19, it says in verse 15 From his mouth goes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That, that day, God's plan will be revealed with the judgment. God's going to judge the living and the dead. And so, we also see God's fulfillment. How do we see God's fulfillment? The fulfillment of God's promises. Look, for rewarding your servants, <clears throat> not just a day of judgment, right? but also a day for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. Bible's full of promises from God to his his children, right? From God to his kids, his servants. Think about the stories, the parables that Jesus told. You'll know this one, Matthew 25:21. So his master said to him, well done, good and Faithful servant, right? You guys know this. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew twenty five twenty three. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew twenty five thirty four. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. There's a reward too. For the servants of God. Mark 10 29 and 30. Jesus said truly I say to you. There's no one. Who has left house or brothers or sister. Or mother or father or children. <coughs> or lands for my sake. And for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time. Houses brothers sisters mothers. Children and lands. With persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So God has a promise. Now it's funny because a lot of people point to that particular scripture to talk about all the upside of the promise. Did you guys catch the one little backhanded promise? Yeah. So you get a hundred times, whatever you left, whatever you sacrifice for the Lord, praise God. God's going to give you more. You know, I lost things in my family as a result of following the Lord, but I've gained a bigger family than I ever had before. Because I have my family in Buell. I have my family in the Lord. I have people uh, that have taken the place. Grandparents that I have uh, lost. And now my kids have other grandparents who are willing to be grandparents to them. Because the family of God is big enough and welcoming enough to fulfill those roles. God says, I'm going to give you a hundred times. I'm going to give you more, more than we can sacrifice for God. God will give us. And then there's that little phrase. With persecution. Nobody seems to want to talk about that one. But you, we, here's what we have to remember, guys. Here's what we have to remember in this world and in this place. We are at war. You are in enemy territory. God hasn't set his feet down and staked his flag. That <coughs> trumpet has not sounded and he has not taken control of this world. So we are at war in enemy territory, and we should expect a certain amount of persecution, right? We should expect that the world will be hostile toward us if we are standing for the gospel because the, word was, the world was hostile toward Christ, wasn't he? Didn't they want him? Seems like when I read the gospels, there were, there were people who believed, right, and followed him. Praise God, that's the blessing. Once the curse? you got people wanting to kill you sometimes, too. Right? Well, let's think about this one. Uh, John, we read about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus died. That's all Lazarus ever did. He died, and Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's all we know about Lazarus. That's it. Do you know that the same guys who wanted to kill Jesus wanted to kill Lazarus? Oh, come. Just being alive made him a witness for Christ. Just being alive. Did he get a lot of blessing? He got more time with his sisters, right? He got more time with his family. Those are some pretty great blessings, but did it come without any persecution? No, there's persecution there too, right? With persecution. Hebrews 6.10 says this, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, <clears throat> and the love that you have shown for his name In serving the saints as you still do. What is he saying? God knows what you do for him. You might have a job somewhere where you work and slave and give of yourself and nobody knows. Nobody really values it. Nobody thinks anything special. Maybe you even think one day I'll stop doing it and everybody will know. But the reality is if you stop doing it, nobody's going to know because they don't know now. They just don't know. This is a broken, fallen place we live in. We should expect that. But what does God say? I know. I know. When we learn to live our life as a sacrifice of praise for an audience of one, you will find greater peace than you have ever known. Because we live our life and we do the things we do to please God and not men. And when we do that, man, there's such peace there, because now it's not about oh they didn't appreciate it or they didn't see or they don't know or you know because we can all find ourselves in those places, but instead we go man, you know what God's word says? He ain't missed one. You know that God's word says He has not missed one of your tears when you cried in the dark someplace, weeping and and sorrowful over what life's done and what's happened in life or failures or. Problems in your life. You know that God says I was there every time. And I caught every one of your tears. And I keep them in a bottle. He says. What does that mean? That God values. Your. Your suffering. Your tears. Your pain. Has a value to God. It's treasure for him. you give God who has everything. Who owns everything. Why don't you just give him. Your heart, good, bad, all of it. He just wants the real. He wants those things that are really you and he treasures them. That brings me, that brings me peace. I don't know about you guys. All God's promises are going to be fulfilled. He's watching. <coughs> Revelation twenty two twelve says this. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. God says, I'm not going to miss anything. I'll see it all. I won't forget the labor of love that you've given. I won't miss an opportunity to give you praise. There's going to be a moment that we all have, every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ, where we stand before God of very God, and we have our our day of reckoning. We all get it. And nobody else is going to be responsible for yours. Just you. And God says, I won't miss anything. I will remember all you've done for me. And that is going to be a pretty incredible day. That's going to be a pretty incredible, the fulfillment of all God's promises and the words that Jesus speaks See, I make all things new. He's not going to forget any of it. So, not only is he <coughs> praising God for his power and his plan, the God's plan being accomplished, not only is he praising him for the promises that are fulfilled, but he's also praising him over the punishment that's declared. The last part of that section of Scripture says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 2 Thessalonians has this to say, guys. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So this is the day he's talking about. This is the day he's talking about. They'll be revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Part of God keeping his promises is that promise as well. That God is going to bring the punishment that he has declared. No one will enter into heaven who, who, whose desire would be, I will not have this man rule over me. They get their desire. Then you won't have this one rule over you. The absence of that is not anything good. Right? It says in the presence of the Lord are are every good and perfect thing. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. With whom there is no shadow of turning. God is perfect goodness. And so we see this is going to be the culmination of those things. Then finally... Verse 19, the last verse in Revelation 11, we have the revealing or a revelation of heaven. We get a scene in heaven. Now, everything else has been blow the trumpet, demons coming, stinging people, suffering for five months, everybody wishing they could die. Blow a trumpet, 200 million more demons coming and and people dying by the smoke of their breath and by the way they look at them and, and by the stings of their tails. And we have all this stuff. And the seventh trumpet says God's kingdoms here. And you know, a lot of men on earth are going to want the 200 million demons, Apollyon and Abaddon and all those other horrible things that have come to the earth, rather than Jesus Christ. I'd rather have that. Their hearts are hard and they won't repent. They won't turn. They won't... Come to the Lord and be saved. So the seventh trumpet sounds, <coughs> and we get to see something we haven't seen really since the Babylonian captivity. It says in verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. What's that next phrase? And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Where is the ark of the covenant? Ah, that's a trick question. According to the Bible, it's in heaven. There's lots of stories. Well, what happened to the ark? What happened to the ark? Some people think Jeremiah snuck in before the destruction of the temple, grabbed the ark, and hid it somewhere in Qumran. You guys heard of Qumran? Qumran, that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, they just found some more scripture. I thought I saw something, but they found another cave with with, uh, at least ancient texts in it. So excited to hear what comes out of that. They say, Jeremiah hid it there. The Ethiopians, today, you can go to Ethiopia, and the Ethiopians say they have it. And they'll show you for, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars, you can go on a tour of Ethiopia, and they'll show you the building it's in. Anybody want to (laughs) go? Nobody has ever been allowed to go in the building and actually see it. But they'll show you the building it's in. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtains. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtains. There's a lot of of rumors, right? Some there's a, a bunch of caves underneath the Temple Mount, and there's stories about how when they were exploring under the Temple Mount, they they came across it. They they found it. It got walled back up. Uh, you know, it's hidden. It's here. It's there. The only place that the Bible tells us it is actually is in the temple of God in heaven. And remember, as we've been going through Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that everything on earth was a picture of a heavenly reality, right? So there's a, at least at this moment, a temple in heaven. And the, the important thing to remember about the temple in heaven is that that's where God's throne is. You remember? God's throne is in the temple. He sits on a place called the mercy seat which was what for the ark it was the cover it was the lid the lid over the ark is called the the mercy seat and that same exact phrase is used to describe Jesus that he is our mercy seat and so we have a, a temple on earth now what was the point of the temple for the nation of Israel what was the point of the temple that's where God meets us in the temple what about for you and I? What's the Bible say? Where's our temple? Where does God meet us? Inside, right? The body is the temple of God. Do you know where else the New Testament says it's the temple of God? The church gathered. Because in the church gathered, God meets with us. Us individually, when we're together, <coughs> some people like to to throw around the scripture, right? Where two or three are gathered, there the Lord is in our midst. You know, that's a a verse dealing with judgment. In order you can know something is right or wrong, you should have two or three witnesses, right? To establish something as being true or not true. But what what does it say? It says that the the Lord lives inside each one of us. Where there's one, God meets us there. For the nation of Israel, where did he meet him? In the temple. What happens in the millennial reign? When Christ rules and reigns, Over the nation of Israel, they finally have the king they've always wanted. There's going to be another temple, right? Because God's going to be with men. But he's not in their hearts, is he? Because when we get to the end of the millennial reign, what does man do? Rebels against God, right? Rebels against God. Then we have the final judgment. And then the final judgment, all things are done. There's a new heaven, a new earth. And then the scripture says, and there's no more temple. Why? Because God's with us. He says, because God will be our God and we will be his people. We don't need a temple. We're not even going to need a sun, because the glory of God is going to give us light. There's not going to be any darkness. Don't worry. You always wondered, I can't get enough done. 24 hours is not enough time. Well, you won't have that problem in heaven. The days don't end. The gates never shut. There's nothing that that needs to be fretted about or worried about. So the temple we see, the Ark of the Covenant, is in heaven. Now I want you to see this last phrase, and I want you to remember, because we've talked about this before. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now what in the world is going on? What is that talking about? Now we can say that's all literal, and that's all literally going to happen. But I, what I want you to see is decreation language. Decreation language is like the stars fell out of the heaven, the, the entire earth quaked, the sun didn't shine, and the moon turned to blood. You guys with me? What is all that declaring? Here's what I want you to see when you see all those things God is on the move. God is moving. And when God moves, you're not going to miss it any more than you would miss it if all of a sudden the sun stopped showing up or the moon turned to blood. You're not going to miss that, are you? You're not going to miss those things. So what is the decreation language? He's saying, look, here's what's happening. The kingdom of God is coming. God is on the move. We is moving now. It is happening. Chapter 12, immediately as the seventh trumpet's blowing, all of a sudden Satan's going to look around and there's going to be Michael and all the burly angels of heaven and they're going to be looking at him and they're going to say, Dude, you can't stay here no more. We're done. And he's going to be cast down to the earth. And you know what the scripture's going to say? Woe to you, inhabitants of the earth. Why? Because the devil's been cast out of heaven and he knows he has but a short time. So what's going on? God is on the move. Things are getting wrapped up. You're three and a half years from the king. Sitting in the throne. From the earth being perfected. From little children being able to play with wild beasts. And not having to worry about it. It's Pretty incredible things that the scripture talks about right. So when we see this kind of language. Peals of thunder. A big earthquake. Hailstones. All that stuff going on. It's it's not so much stating for us that those things are happening on earth, because those things happen on earth now, right? But what it is saying is, God is on the move. The seventh trumpet is sounded. The angels are picking up stakes. The camp is being picked up, and we're coming. And the very next thing we see is the cleansing of heaven. And after the cleansing of heaven, what's next? cleansing of earth yeah satan's going to be cast out and god's going to turn his attention toward the earth now here's where we've seen this language before if you remember revelation four and five from the throne comes flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder and before the throne we're burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god it's all talking about man god's moving god's doing something that's happening Revelation eight five. the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth. There was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What's it saying? God's moving. God's answering the prayers. Remember, those were the answer to the prayers of the martyrs. God's saying, yeah, you spilled the martyr's blood, so I'm going to give you blood to drink. God bringing His judgment. Revelation 16.18, <clears throat> there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Such as there has never been since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. Now in that case, I think the earth's shaken, Right? You hear the difference in the language? There's God moving, God bringing judgment, something's happening, and then God's shaking everything that can be shaken. So that everything that's not attached to him falls. What do you do when everything shakes around you? Does it cause you to realize that all the things I've been hoping in and holding on to can't hold me up? And what I want to hold on to is that which is firm, a firm foundation. So where's my firm foundation? In Jesus Christ. Psalm 145. I just want to read this psalm (coughs) to you and close tonight. It says this, I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. The fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. For the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. It's the return of the king. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.